Welcome to Interfaith Encounters. My guest today is Dr. Josh Packard. He is the Executive Director of the Springtide Institute, which has just published The New Normal, Eight Ways to Care for Gen Z in a Post-Pandemic World. Welcome, Dr. Packard. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me. First, let me ask you to tell us briefly about the Springtide Institute and its work. Well, at Springtide, we um, we focus on the religious and spiritual lives of 13 to, to 25 year olds. This is the the group that would most commonly be referred to as Gen Z, um, and or at least a, a big portion of Gen Z. Um, and it's the one that we where we're seeing sort of the you know the most rapid change in terms of how they engage with religion and spirituality, uh, everything from the formal markers of attendance uh, and affiliation to these very informal um, practices around prayer or you know how do you identify and 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 you know who do you come into contact with on a daily basis. And we really saw you know we really saw a need for someone to step in and understand that across all faith traditions. Um, including nuns, N-O-N-E-S, nuns, which is, you know, just increasingly such a big slice of the pie of how young people identify. I'm, I'm curious about this age group, 13 to 25-year-olds. Are there events that mark off this particular age group, um, or is it just a, a generation that has arisen? Well, it's a happy coincidence uh, on the lower end at 13. I mean, that's about the age, without going through some pretty rigorous protocols, um, beyond just your standard consent forms, which of course we use, that's about the age at which you can, you can really begin, you know, start to survey young people. Um, and surveys make up a lot of what we do, but there's other kinds of data that we collect as well. Um, it's a little bit extra time and expense and other resources to go down to that age range. I mean, most places stop at 18, uh, but we really felt like it was worth it because it, it, it helped point the way you know, it helps us to understand where that, how that landscape is, is sort of unfolding and being created. And when I say it's a happy coincidence, the happy part of it is that that's also the age, um, before we even knew about the regulations, that was the age that we had targeted because so many sort of rites of passage in various religious traditions happen in or around that time. So we think of a bar and bat mitzvahs, confirmations, um, et cetera. A lot of the commitment ceremonies are going to occur in those early teenage years as well as it being, you know, sort of the transition for a lot of young people into middle and high school. So really big transitional years. At the top end, at 25, that's, uh, I know this is going to come as, you know, you, you can have your feelings about whether or not this should or shouldn't be the case. But at 25, I'm a sociologist, and that's the age range that most social scientists would say a few things sort of come into play. One of those is that we can pretty reliably say that at 25, the, the overwhelming majority of people have transitioned out of their home of origin, whether that's, you know, going to college and taking, you know, you know, taking your five or six years to get through college, maybe sometimes four years moving back in with your family, but whatever, by 25, you're on your own. And the other thing that happens uh, in your early 20s <clears throat> is that your brain stops developing. I mean, it at least reaches full maturity. So this typically happens later for uh, males than females. Um, but nevertheless, it gives us a point at which we get past that emerging adulthood stage and, and we, we can sort of say, okay, for, for, you know, not that people stop changing, but at 25, we basically sort of tend to know who we are. Given this understanding of Gen Z and the research you've done, what makes the response of Gen Z to the pandemic uh, unique or distinctive that you have seen? Well, we got 
you know, we, we spent a lot of time thinking about Gen Z. We've collected 20,000 survey responses over the last year and a half and, and hundreds of interviews with them on a variety of topics. And uh, one of the things that kept emerging uh, is, is we, got, we got concerned rather about this, this notion that people wanted to go back to normal. They were waiting for the pandemic to end and then they were gonna go, you know, basically gonna try and recreate their pre-pandemic life as much as possible. And uh, that just struck us as, you know, that being that, that that's more or less possible for, for adults to do. Um, if you were working in an office before the pandemic, assuming you've been able to keep your job, you're going to go back to working in an office after the pandemic is over. And, and you know, maybe there's going to be some changes there, but your, your life is probably not dramatically upended. Um, now, that is not to diminish the, the changes that are occurring, but we saw that with young people, you know, there was just not... It, there is no going back to normal. The, the change is such a hallmark of the of those years between 13 and 25 that when you miss those events, it's not like you get to go back and catch up with them. You know, so we think about, of course, the big things like um, graduations, proms, those kinds of things, but also even just the more mundane things. Like we take my son, he's below our age range, he's 11, but the last time he was in person in school, he was in fourth grade. The next time he's going to be in person in school, he'll be in middle school. And, you know, so there's no, when you say to him, like, hey, let's get back to normal. He's like, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> normal was me sitting in the same desk all day in middle school is a much different experience. So we really, when you couple that with the other things that we know about Gen Z, which is that they're already incredibly distrustful of social institutions. Um, they already feel really disconnected, even before the pandemic. We've got good data about this. They, they're the most isolated and lonely generation that we've ever seen. All of that is exacerbated and we felt like was going to even running this risk of, of becoming just augmented, you know, exponentially if we don't really attend to the inner lives of young people who are coming out of this pandemic, you know, at least the disease part of the pandemic. Um, you know, they, a lot of them say, you know, over half of them say that they are nervous about coming out of the pandemic and going back into social life again, that this is not going to be an easy transition. They're excited, but they're scared about what that's going to look like and how they, how they were going to manage it. And so we felt like we wanted to not only bring that data to light, but then as we always say at Springtide, we don't ever want to be interesting. We always want to be useful. And so our data is always actionable. And, and we try to couple those, those statistics with what can, what can a trusted adult do especially in religious contexts, to help re-engage young people, um, you know, to help them emerge from this and make sense out of what just happened to them. Before we get to this, some of this actionable things that have come from your research, can I ask you to say a little bit more about the inner lives of uh, Gen Z and, and what you have seen that that looks like? It's a really great question. So the we covered this in the State of Religion and Young People 2020, which is a, we do the State of Religion and Young People every fall. And the data that came out of 2020, this first round of asking these questions, was pretty clear that um, young people are, are still incredibly interested in God and they're, they're still fairly active in terms of prayer life and reading scripture, sometimes even attending services, et cetera. But what is also equally clear is that they have very little, if any, interest in doing those things in institutional settings. So a lot of times people look at that, like last week, this Gallup poll that came out that, you know, showed that for the first time uh, in 100 years, the United States has dropped below 50% of people who are members of a religious uh, community. I mean, 
you know, it's that, that is not something that happened overnight. It's been a long and steady decline from membership. Um, and somebody somebody mentioned in um, social media to me that they were saying, "Well, this looks like this is secularization in its clearest form," and I, I just couldn't I couldn't disagree more. I mean, it's it is not you know the the relationship between attendance and belief has been decoupling for a long time, and that is especially true with Gen Z, the, this youngest generation that we have, where their sort of formal institutional markers are not very good indicators at all of their actual religious beliefs, interests, desires, et cetera. So we see like, you know, for example, 52% of young people who tell us that they're affiliated. So they check the box to say that they're, you know, Christian Catholic or Christian Protestant or Jewish or something. Um, over half of them say that they have little to no trust in organized religion. <laughs> so I, like the story that's really going on here, when we look at these, these traditional markers, um, is really one about trust. And it's not just a trust issue for religious organizations. People in America and young people especially distrust all social institutions, every one of them. There's not a single institution that's increased its trust levels over the last 40 years. So that's important context for how we begin to understand the religious lives, the inner lives of Gen Z. So just because they're not showing up, it doesn't mean they don't believe. Now, there, uh, of course, that could easily be seen as a step towards, you know, unbelief or non-belief. And if, you, and if that's a thing that concerns you, you know, that, that might be a, a red flag for you. Um, but the, the attendance numbers alone are not the story here. Yeah. This, this reminds me a little bit of the Charles Taylor's work on a secular age. Yes. And speaking of a supernova of religious options. Mm -hmm of which only a very small number are the institutions that we know of. Right, right. Unfortunately, so where we talk internally because we're all sort of religion nerds, um, I mean, we try to make our publications very accessible and actionable, as I mentioned, but internally we, we talk about Charles Taylor a lot. <clears throat> uh, and I'll say that the one, the one place where I think there's a really important distinction there, though, is that while there's a, uh, of course, with the internet and everything else, there's an amazing amount of, of religious options. You know, the key to understanding Gen Z is understanding that they are the most diverse generation we've ever had in the, you know, in this country. And they can't, not only are they the most diverse, they care about diversity <clears throat> to a greater extent, but the resources for supporting a person, especially a young person in their faith journey, those are still primarily concentrated in and around institutions. And not just that, that institutions have control over those resources, but that they primarily still spend those resources trying to get young people to engage with those institutions, despite the mountains and growing evidence to suggest that young people are not interested in doing that, that one thing. You know, I mean, young people will tell us that they'll engage with you to do almost anything else, except that one thing where we keep putting all of our resources. And, and so I think that that's a, you know, it, it is it is both true to say that there's a whole lot of options and you can pick and choose to do whatever you want. But it is also true to say that young people without supports, it, it's really, really difficult to build a sustainable, flourishing faith life. So we've got to find a way to bring those things together. That does sound to me like a, a critical disjuncture when the, the institutions that have the resources and are willing to spend them are somehow out of tune with those who they most want to serve. Yes. Is that a fair statement? Yeah. That is a fair statement. And it's, uh, we've been doing focus groups with religious leaders now 
we've done, we've had hundreds of people in these and, and I've, I've given talks all over the country to different groups, been in front of lots of youth ministers, religious leaders of all kinds. And I can say across the board, uh, you know, it's not the case that somebody's or anybody isn't working hard enough. They're all well-intentioned. They're all working really hard. I think we're just working with some bad, not some bad, I'm sorry, let me back up and say, I think we're working with some outdated mental models. So this sort of like, if we build it, they will come and then we will get to know them there. And that's where we will form our relationships with them in transformative ways. That was a really effective model of doing ministry across a lot of different contexts, campus ministries, Christian ministries, Jewish ministries, camp ministries um, for, for probably 30 or 40 years. Uh, but in a world with low institutional trust, where their young people are not inclined to show up in your, in your space, well, that, that model doesn't work as well. Um, it's, it's, not, it's not a bad one. It's just sort of run its course. Um, what's the, the mental model part that I think needs to shift is to understand that young people remain really interested in religion and God. They just don't want to engage in those conversations, and they're not going to engage in those conversations through these sort of institutional frameworks. It all, everything now boils down to relationships. So this isn't, a, this isn't a time for institutions to give up hope, but it may be a time for them to really seriously reconsider their models. Yeah, I think it, I think it becomes, that's, that's right. I think it, it gets down to this notion of understanding what are your core values that you're not going to compromise on, your beliefs, your teachings, and what are your modes of delivery? Um, you know, one of the, I think one of the analogies here, if we can take a step over to the secular world for, for just a minute, is to think about Blockbuster. Like Blockbuster video is great. I remember growing up not too far from where you are uh, in the Metroplex. And when Blockbuster came to, came to town, it was amazing. You could walk around and pick any movie you wanted off the shelf and take it home. Um, now, of course, Blockbuster doesn't exist anymore. Uh, I don't think. Maybe there's one or two stragglers still out there. Uh, but they, Blockbuster didn't go away because people stopped watching movies. In fact, quite the opposite. People watch more movies now than, than ever. It's that Blockbuster went away because the, the, the form in which people consumed movies and media changed and Blockbuster didn't change with it. And I think we're seeing a very similar story potentially here with religion, which is that, look, it's just the mode of delivery. Like young people, your average 13, 14, 15 year old is still asking essentially religious questions. You know, what should I do with my life? What's going to happen when I die? How do I know right from wrong, et cetera, et cetera. They've just told you like, I'm just not going to go to the video store and check out that movie. I would like to have those questions answered in a different way. And if, we, if, if the church isn't willing to, to sort of adapt those modes of delivery to meet those people where they're exploring those questions in their lives, then they will become irrelevant. Yeah, thanks. Well, that said, moving from the that possibility of irrelevance. What are some of the key ways that care can be extended to Gen Z then? We, um, thankfully, were able to explore this, you know, is, as we look not just to die, the diagnosis is important because it helps us to understand. But as we look not just to diagnosis, but to, to sort of treatment, you know, to action, we're, we're always focusing our, our research in that direction as well. Um, and that's, that could be a bit more challenging, as you might imagine, because we've got to have a hypothesis and test it, and sometimes it doesn't work. And so you've spent a lot of time collecting that data that you know, isn't super effective. Um, but this framework emerged called relational authority, and it's, it's really this 
this way of doing relationships that resonates with young people. Because one of our initial hypotheses was like, okay, so young people just don't want to be told what to do. Like they, they don't want some adult who's an expert, you know, or a quote unquote expert, or maybe real or otherwise. They're just not, they're just bucking against authority. Like maybe this is just the story that's always told about teenagers. Um, but as we, as we tested that hypothesis and unpacked it, what we realized is that young people were consistently clamoring for more than that. It's not that they don't want your expertise. It's that expertise without care is useless. And we called this framework relational authority. It has five dimensions. Um, very quickly, they're listening, transparency, integrity, care, and expertise. So if you do, if you're a great listener and you do a great job of listening, we, we sort of operationalize or articulate what these mean and look like in the life of a young person in, in the report. Um, but you can be great at listening. You can be transparent in all the right times and the right ways. You can show incredible amounts of integrity and you can express care by spending lots of time with the young person. But if you don't also come with some expertise there, they're just going to see you as sort of a I don't know, like a, like maybe a nice person or, you know, like a, a cool uncle or something, but they're not going to see you as a trusted guide. You have to bring that expertise. But if you show up with just the expertise and you don't do any of those other four things, you don't listen well, um, you don't show a lot of integrity, you're not expressing care, et cetera, then they're never going to hear the, the sort of really expert advice that you have or insights that you've got. And I think mostly that's the world that we're sort of, we've been living in is this or that we're emerging out of is where religious leaders, especially have been trained to be experts. And, and the way that you get somebody over to your side is that you sort of convince them through your expertise. But we just don't live in a world where people automatically trust experts of any kind. I've been a college professor. I'm wrapping up my last semester. Um, I've been a college professor for over a decade now. And uh, I mean, I've seen that with my own students, like, you know, my PhD doesn't matter to them. Uh, you know, it, they'll do what I say for them to do because they know that I hold like their grade, you know, <laughs> uh, at, is at, their grade is at stake, but they don't really listen to me um, until they realize that I care about them. Uh, and it's, it's, and then, but then once that, once we put those things together, you can make, you know, some dramatic inroads. I'll just give you one, one sort of statistic to sum this up. When, when we ask young people how much they trust institutions on a scale of one to 10, there's no institution that gets, um, much over a five. Nonprofits get a 5.2. That's the highest one. But when we ask young people, okay, for the adults that you know in your life who combine these five dimensions of relational authority, listening, transparency, integrity, care, and expertise, how much do you trust them? And over 90% of them expressed the full amount of trust so that they trust them a lot. So if we, you know, this is, this is really critical to understanding about like why we need to lead with relationships and not necessarily programs or institutions. It, it interests me that you say this lead with relationships as opposed to the, to expertise. Um, in my classes here, we, every year we have um, a visit to, or in COVID time, an interview with the head of um, a ministry that is built around a coffee shop and is actually, mm. um, the let's be at a place where people come to and then see if conversations can develop. And mm -hmm. it, it has been uh, by, by any measure that I can imagine, it's been very successful, uh, particularly successful in terms of building relationships of trust and having a commitment from the young people who are involved. And they mostly, they start as 
in the Gen Z age range. That is, they said they start 19 to 25. Many are older now. Um, but so they, they stay on and they take leadership. That's what I want to say. Yeah. Um, at the same time, it has been hard for the larger institutional church to value this because it doesn't return the metrics. <laughs> yes. To. And I'm wondering if you've seen this problem that, that um, it's hard to measure listening, transparency, integrity, and care, uh, mm -hmm. even though they're critical features of this kind of uh, relationship building. Well, I think 100%. I mean, the metrics absolutely matter. We know what gets reported. We know what gets counted. And the old business adage, you know, what what gets measured is what matters. Um, look, we were really innovative in the church world for a long time around programs. We, we there, there was a time, I know this is hard to believe for a lot of people maybe listening. There was a time that there was no such thing as youth ministry. There were no metrics that mattered. We just simply, nobody was counting anything. And we evolved metrics and programs um, that were effective. The history of the church in this country um, across many traditions is one of innovation. And we can be innovative again about relationships and how to scale those and how to measure them. And we, in fact, we have to be. That's the challenge I think that's before us right now. If what we really care about is the flourishing of a young person's faith life, we have to figure out how to do this work and how to do it at scale. And also we have to figure out how to report those things back to the people who are you know, sort of controlling the resources. One really critical thing here that can help is, is understanding really what we're after. So one of the oldest lessons in sociology um, is this idea, this concept that belonging comes before believing. You can get some short-term gains by getting people to, especially young people who are, you know, emotional regulation is a thing, right? You can have a mountaintop experience and you can get a conversion or you can, you know, get somebody who's on a real high, but we can, or we can even get people to sign on to a statement of faith. They'll put their name on it. But what does that really mean for them six months or a year or two years down the line? How durable is that? Well, it turns out that when we get those kind of experiences and they're not scaffolded with relationships, those tend to be not very durable. They don't really last through, you know, they have a much lower chance rather of lasting through a pandemic or moving to college or getting your first job or finding a spouse who doesn't share your religious beliefs, et cetera. But if we've got people embedded in a community, then it is much more likely that they're going to stick around for the long haul. Um, and that's why that belonging component is so critical when it comes to belief. We have to, you know, we have to figure out ways to, to sort of measure engagement over the long haul to say, okay, well, if transformation is really what we're after, then it's not just about how many people did we baptize, you know, how many people got bar mitzvah, but how are we keeping folks engaged over the course of their, you know, emerging adolescent, emerging adulthood lives. What do you see then, or have you seen new models for engagement emerging from your research? And with that, what do you think is the future of religion among Gen Z? And how can religious institutions respond to those needs? Well, I think, you know, as we, I, the, the future really, as I mentioned, relies on figuring out how you can scale a relationship-based ministry. And I, this is going to take us again into some secular examples, but I, I know what the common thing is to say, whenever confronted with change, um, two things tend to happen. Uh, we tend to go back to what worked when we were being really successful. And that's a really great strategy. Uh, as long as you can reasonably assume that the world now is basically the same as the world was then. 
you know, you can sort of get back to your roots, get back on brand a little bit if, if that's the language that you speak. Um, the, diff, the, the problem with that here, though, is that the world has changed in some fundamental ways uh, relatively recently, as, we, as we've already talked about with regard to trust. So going back to do the things, you know, that you did when you were really successful is actually going to move you further away from your target. So we got to come to terms with that. And when we start thinking about then how relationships are the pathway forward, we can look to people who essentially, you know, manage relationships at scale for their jobs. And I think if you start looking around, you're going to find that this is more common in more industries than you might think. The two examples that come immediately to mind for me are fundraisers and uh, salespeople. I mean, fundraisers and salespeople essentially manage portfolios of sometimes hundreds of relationships. And they manage to keep track of them. Um, you know, they manage to understand what's going on with them. Now, what you're doing in ministry is not nearly as transactional as what's going on there. I'm not suggesting that there's a one-to-one. -one. I mean, we're after something that's much more transformational. But I think we can learn things from those fields about how to use, what, you know, what is a spreadsheet, essentially, or a CRM. How do we track every conversation that we're having with every young people? How do we equip volunteers to understand what are the stages of belief or faith or development in a young person's religious life? And, and how, what are the markers of those things in our own traditions? You know, so that when somebody sits down with a 15 year old Josh, after a pretty quick conversation, we can understand like, okay, Josh is in, you know, this stage. And in the next conversation, we'd really like to move Josh forward to the next stage. Uh, I think that's the pathway forward. I mean, it's uh, we. I'm, I said it before, and I was serious. Like, we got to get really innovative and sophisticated about how we think about relationships. This is not just hanging out with kids after school. Um, it may look like that ultimately in its public, you know, in its most public expression. But there's a lot. There's got to have to be a lot more intentionality that goes into that. Just like we sit down sometimes, you know, all summer and plan out a, a school year worth of curriculum or events or programs, we're going to need to spend that kind of planning time. Now, I want to be clear, we can't do what we're doing now and do this thing that I'm saying. As I mentioned earlier, nobody's not working hard enough. You're going to have to give up some things to make space for this. But the data are pretty clear that this, this is where, you know, we need to be if what we want to do is support young folks. We're going to have to give up doing some things that don't work in order to give the time and energy to the things that do work. And that's super scary. I know that's scary. <laughs> I'm just reminded of the old computer days. The, the biggest problem is the installed user base. Yeah, and I think a lot of it though is in, you know, we need to, we need to rely on the, the experience and knowledge that we have about, about rituals can carry us a long way here. Because some of that is, you know, these legacies of events or like every fall we do this father-daughter dance. Well, what does that look like? anymore. And, you know, in a, especially if you're working in a really diverse community with people who have home lives that look like all kinds of different models and um, expressions, like, do we need to still do a father-daughter dance? Like, does that work anymore? And but that doesn't mean we just cut it off and condemn it. We use the ritualistic knowledge that we have about how to celebrate it, put it to bed, acknowledge it for what it was and move into something new. Let me ask you if you have a couple of closing comments for us, and then we'll Wrap sure. Up. Well, you mentioned the new normal, and um, that's uh, that's out uh, on our website right now, springtideresearch.org. You can get it for free. And we think a big part of, uh, in the in the sort of crude way that I've been saying it is, you know, in in talks I've been giving is that if you're a religious leader and and you you know show up for the first time in the life of a young person in the last say 18 months when school starts up again in the fall and you haven't seen them, 
and you start talking about Galatians or, you know, <laughs> religious holidays or something, you, you're, you're in the wrong place. I mean, you we really need to start wrapping our heads around the trauma that young people have experienced and what the new normal, the exercises and empathy that we have in there are really about helping you to prepare your own heart and mind and soul to put you back in the place uh, or put you in the place that young people uh, are currently sort of to get a feel for what they're experiencing based on what the data are telling us um, so that you can have those conversations as opposed to these, you know, because that's the support that they need. If we go right back into trying to do the stuff that we did before the pandemic started, it's just not going to resonate. Thank you very much, uh, Josh, Dr. Packard. I appreciate very much the time you've given me. I want to just repeat that this is springstide.org. Springtideresearch.org. Springtideresearch.org. And that'll be in the, uh, that's on our, on our website. I want to thank you very much, Dr. Packard. Yeah, thank you for having me. This has been great. This has been Interfaith Encounters. In the fourth series, we are exploring different perspectives on the future of religion. I'm Robert Hunt, and we've been speaking with Dr. Josh Packard of Springtide Institute. Join us June 22nd, when our guest, Nadia Zbahi, discusses his provocative book, Rethink God.